Three, two, one. White Hedgecock, how are you? Not too bad, mate. Yourself? Yeah, I'm great. Very how are you good. feeling after last night? You a bit dusty? A little bit dusty. We went out last night. Um, the, the laws have been lifted, so we can go back to the pubs. Semi-lifted. Semi-lifted, yeah. But um, it was good. Good times. Your boss has got a decent house, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how we ended up there, but we did. Works hard, mate. Mm. Works hard. With that Harrington Park life, eh? Oh, yeah. Anyway, um... What's been going on? You got surgery. Tell everyone about your surgery, mate. Four wisdom teeth removed. Yeah, that's why it's been a bit of a gnarly. Yeah, been a bit of a delay between podcasts. Cause... It's nothing, nothing on eye surgery. Yeah, that's right. You got your eyes done. Nothing as well. on eye surgery, but I was pretty lucky. All teeth were straight, so it's pretty much just mm. yeah. out you come. But it's definitely not hey out you come. It was fucking I'm out cold. Someone's on my chest yanking stuff out of my mouth. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> How how, uh, how many dollar is mate? Five G's. Five grand. I think eight. it was over five. I think it was five two or something. That's a lot. Yeah. I got mine one taken out. Uh, I think obviously didn't go an anesthetic, but Brave that was man. like four hundred bucks. That's probably why. Anesthetic would have cost you. That. That's what you're paying for. Yeah, it's about nine hundred. Mm. That's okay. probably the least cost in all of it, really. Yeah. But um, and that's the one you can claim back with Medicare. So mm. I got to do that at some stage. I don't know when to do that, but. Mm. <clears throat> That's what Medicare helps. Yeah, I thought they didn't help out with dental. I'm pretty sure they don't actually. <laughs> they pay for the anesthetic though. Yeah, I don't. Don't know. Don't know, man. I just went in there and said, "I'm in pain. Get him out." Yeah. And he, fortunately, it was like, uh, "Yeah, we'll do it within two weeks." Like some people I know are waiting months. Mm. Like. Well, yeah, the laws got lifted because I went to get a filling done and they wouldn't do it during Corona for some reason. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. dentist are you going to? Uh, Gentle Dental, Campbelltown, represent. Uh, that might be why. Don't be like that. They're a franchise. <laughs> They're doing all right. So, uh, but yeah, big yeah. one today, mate, isn't it? A big episode. It's a rather serious episode. It is. I think it's probably our most serious episode yet. Yeah, it's so, the most most research we've done on oh, an episode. Yeah. I think. Oh Not yeah, up there. But yeah, the Port Arthur massacre we're doing yeah. today. It was um a big piece of Australiana history, isn't it? Uh, and it's one of those ones that you you think you know what happened, but then if someone asks you. You don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's one of those things that, like, when we talked about doing it, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the shooting. And then I thought, what do I know about that? And it was not much. Yeah, until you start looking into it, start watching docos, start reading up on it. Mm. Just so much more to it. Yeah, there's a lot happened on, on that day. So we've actually got a guest coming in, Oscar Zimmerman, who's wrote a uh, very interesting book that we'll go into once he gets here. Yeah. But we thought we'd do like a, um, just an overview of what happened at the yeah. Port Arthur Massacre for everyone, just to give like a general general consensus of what happened on that day, the common view that everyone has. Yeah. Commonly um, accepted narrative. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting. So, so this is, uh, we'll get into it now, just get, yeah. to give you the overview. You can start us off, Ed. Yeah, we'll just do the brief uh, intro into what the Port Arthur, uh, Port Arthur Massacre was, just yep. to get it out there. So, uh, the Port Arthur Massacre occurred on the 28th uh, of April, 1996. It's a mass shooting in which 35 people were killed and 23 wounded in Port Arthur, Tasmania. Yeah. The murderer, infamous Martin Bryant, pleaded guilty. He was given 35 life sentences, sentences without possibility of parole. So, uh, and as a result, fundamental changes of gun control laws within Australia took place. Yeah, pretty soon after, wasn't it? Yeah. It's still the worst case um, massacre in modern history of Australia, committed yeah. by a single person. Mm. So, yeah. Um, so, let's go into the whole day. Let's give we'll everyone get, the overview of the whole day. We'll start from the morning and 
wrap it all up. Yeah, get in there, mate. All right, so the events of the day uh, through this narrative were pieced together after investigation by police, then presented in court on the 19th of November, 1996. So, the morning events. On the 28th of April, 1996, Martin Bryant awoke at 6am, notable to his family as he was not known to do so due to his lack of commitments. Two hours later, his girlfriend left the house to visit her parents, according to the home security system. Bryant left the house at 9.47am. Bryant travelled to Fawcett, arriving sometime around 11am, and then he continued to Port Arthur and was seen driving into Seascape down to down the Arthur Highway around 11.45am. Stopped at Seascape, guest accommodation site that his father had wanted to purchase, owned by David and Nolene Martin. Bryant went inside and fired several shots, then gagged David Martin and stabbed him. Witnesses testified to different numbers of shots being fired at this time. It was stated in court that it was believed that this was the time that Bryant killed the Martins, his first two victims on the day. A couple stopped at Seascape and Bryant met them outside. When they asked if they could have a look at the accommodation, Bryant told them that they could not because his parents were away and his girlfriend was inside. His demeanour was described as quite rude and the couple felt uncomfortable. They left at about 12.35pm. Bryant then drove to Port Arthur, taking the keys to the Seascape properties after locking the doors. He stopped the car, uh, which had stopped at a car which had been pulled over due to overheating and talked with two people there. He suggested that they come to the Port Arthur Cafe for some coffee later. He travelled past the Port Arthur historic site towards Palmer's Lookout Road, it was a property owned by the Martins, where he came across Roger Lana. Lana had met him on some, uh, some previous occasions, more than 15 years previously. Bryant told Lama he had surfing, he had been surfing and had bought a property called Frog Lodge. Frog Lodge. Sorry, Frog Lodge. Thank you, mate. You're right. Uh, he was now looking to buy some cattle from Lana. Bryant also made several comments about buying the Martins' place next door. He asked if Marion Lana was home and asked if he could continue down the driveway of the farm to see her. Lana said okay, but told Bryant he would come also. Bryant then responded that he might go to Nabina first, and he was going to return in the afternoon. Okay, cut to the Port Arthur historic site at around 1.10pm. Bryant got in line at the toll booth at the entrance of the historic site. He paid the entry fee and proceeded to park near the Broad Arrow Cafe, near the water's edge. The site security manager told him to park with the other cars because that area was reserved for camper vans and the car park was very busy that day. Bryant moved his car to another area and sat in his car for a few minutes. He then moved his car back near the water outside the cafe. The security manager saw him go up to the cafe carrying a sports-type bag and a video camera, but ignored him. Bryant went into the cafe and purchased a meal, which he ate on the deck outside. He attempted to start conversation with people about the lack of wasps in the area and there not being as many Japanese tourists as usual. He appeared nervous and quite regularly uh, looked back to the car park and into the cafe. Uh, so here we go. This is where the actual some of the murders went down. Okay, Brian uh, finished his meal, walked into the cafe, and returned his tray, assisted by some people who opened the door for him. 
He put his bag on the table and pulled out a Colt AR-15 SP-1 carbon with a Colt scope and one 30-round magazine attached. The bag also contained, among other things, the knife he used to stab David Martin. It is believed the Colt magazine was partially emptied from the shooting at Seascape. The cafe was very small with the tables very close together and was particularly busy that day, with many people waiting for the next ferry. The following events happened extremely quickly. Bryant took aim from his hip and pointed the rifle at Mo Yi uh, and So Long Chung, uh, who were visiting from Malaysia and were seated at a table beside Bryant. He shot them at close range, killing both instantly. Bryant then fired a shot at Mick Sergeant, grazing his scalp and knocking him to the floor. He fired a fourth shot that killed the sergeant's girlfriend, 21-year-old Kate Elizabeth Scott, uh, by hitting her in the back of the head. A 28-year-old New Zealand winemaker, Jason Winter, uh, had been helping the busy cafe staff as Bryant turned towards Winter's wife, Joanne, and the 15-month-old son, Mitchell. Winter threw a, a serving tray at Bryant in an attempt to distract him. Joanne Winter's father pushed his daughter and grandson to the floor and under the table. Uh, 44-year-old Anthony Nightingale stood up after the sound of the first shots but had no time to move. Nightingale yelled, no, not here, and Bryant pointed the weapon at him. As Nightingale leaned forward, he was fatally shot through the neck and spine. The next table held a group of 10 friends but some had just left the table uh, to return their meal trays and to visit the gift shop. Bryant fired one shot and killed Kevin Vincent Sharp, 68 years old. Uh, the second hit uh, Walter Bennett, 66, passed through his body and struck Raymond John Sharp, 67, uh, Kevin Sharp's brother, uh, killing both of them. The three had their backs towards Bryant and were unaware what was happening. They at first believed someone was letting off firecrackers. One of them made the comment, that's not funny, after hearing the f uh, first few shots, not realising that they were in, they were real. The shots were all close range with a gun, uh, with, that gu with the gun at or just inches away from the back of their heads. Gerald Broom, Gay Fiddler and her husband John were all struck by bullet fragments but survived. Bryant then turned towards Tony and Sarah Kiston and Andrew Mills. Both men stood up at the noise of the initial shots but had no time to move away. Andrew Mills was shot in the head. Tony Kiston was also shot from about two metres away, also in the head, but managed to push his wife away prior to being shot. Sarah Kiston was apparently not seen by Bryant as she was under the table by that time. Thelma Walker and Pamela Law were injured by fragments before being dragged to the ground by their friend Peter Crosswell as the three sheltered underneath the table. Also injured by fragments from these shots was Patricia Barker. It was only then that the majority of the people in the cafe began to realise what was happening and that the shots were not from reenactment at the historical site, which many of them thought. At this point, there was great confusion, but with many people not knowing what to do as Bryant was near the main exit. Bryant moved just a few metres and began shooting at the table where Graham Coyler, Collier, sorry, Carolyn Lawton, and her daughter Sarah was seated. Collier was severely injured in the jaw, nearly choking to death on his own blood. Sarah Lawton ran towards her mother, who had been moving between tables. Carolyn Lawton threw herself on top of her daughter. Bryant shot Carolyn Lawton in the back, 
Her eardrum was ruptured by the muzzle blast from the gun going off beside her ear. She survived her injuries, but learned after she came out of surgery that despite her efforts, Sarah had been fatally shot in the head. Bryant pivoted around and shot Mer- Mervyn Howard, who was seated. The bullet passed through him, through a window of the cafe, and hit a table on the outside balcony. Bryant quickly followed up with a shot to the neck of Mervyn Howard's wife, Mary. Bryant then leaned over a vacant baby stroller and pointed the gun at her head and shot her a second time. Both of the Howards' injuries were fatal. Bryant was near the exit, preventing others from attempting to run past him and escape. He moved across the cafe towards the gift shop area. There was an exit door through the display area to the outside balcony, but it was locked and could only be opened with a key. As Bryant moved... Robert Elliott stood up. He was shot in the arm and the head, left slumping against the fireplace, but alive. All of these events, from the first bullet that killed Ng, took approximately 15 seconds, during which Bryant fired 17 shots, killed 12 people, and wounded 10 more. Bryant moved towards the gift shop area, giving many people time to hide under tables and behind shop displays. He fatally shot the two local women who worked in the gift shop, 17-year-old Nicole Burgers uh, in the head and 26-year-old Elizabeth Howard in the arm and chest. Coralie Lever and Vera Jari hid behind a Hesaya screen with others. What's a... Sorry, a Hessian screen with others. Uh, Lever's husband, Dennis, was fatally shot in the head. Pauline Masters, Vera Jari's husband ron and peter and caroline nash had attempted to escape through a locked door but could not peter nash lay down on top of his wife to hide her from bryant bryant moved into the gift shop area where several people trapped with nowhere to go were crouched down in the corners gwen neander uh, trying to make it to the door was shot in the head and killed bryant saw movement in the cafe and uh, moved to the front door. Uh, he shot at a table and his, and sorry, he shot at a table and hit Peter Crosswell, who was hiding under it in the buttock. Uh, Jason Winter, hiding in the gift shop, through Bryant had left the building and made a comment about it to people that near him before moving out into the open. Bryant saw him with Winter stating, no, no, just prior to being shot. The bullet hitting his hand, neck, and chest. A second shot to the head uh, proved fatal to Winter. Fragments from those sh- shots struck American tourist Dennis Ol- Olson, who had been hiding with his w- wife, uh, Mary, and Winter. Uh, Dennis Olson suffered fragment injuries to his hand, scalp, eye, and chest, but survived. Um, it's not immediately clear what happened next although at some point brian reloaded his weapon brian walked back to the cafe and then returned to the gift shop this time looking down to another corner of the shop where he found several people hiding in the corner he walked up to them and shot ronald jari through the neck then peter nash and pauline masters killing all three now ronald jari that's an important important one to remember for later yeah, put that in your back pocket, everybody. Um, he did not see uh, Caroline Nash, who was lying under her husband. Bryant aimed his gun at an unidentified Asian man, but the rifle magazine was empty. Bryant then moved to the gift shop counter where he reloaded his rifle, leaving an empty magazine on the service counter and left the building. Bryant killed eight people after moving to the gift shop 
and wounded two others. In the cafe and gift shop combined, he fired 29 shots, killed 20 people and wounded 12 more. During the cafe shooting, some staff members have been able to escape through the kitchen and alerted people outside. There are a number of coaches outside with lines of people, tourists, many of whom began to hide in the buses or nearby buildings. Others did not understand the situation or were unsure where to go. Some people believed there was some sort of historical reenactment happening and moved towards the area instead of away from it. Ashley John Law, a site employee, was moving people away from the cafe into the information centre where Bryant fired at him from 50 to 100 metres, approximately 50 to 110 yards away. The bullets missed Law and hit some trees nearby. Bryant then moved towards the coaches. One of the coach drivers, Royce Thompson, was shot in the back as he was moving along the passenger side of the coach. He fell to the ground and was able to crawl, then roll under the bus to safety, but later died of his wounds. Bridget Cook was trying to guide people down between the buses and along the jetty area to cover. Bryant moved to the front of his bus, front of this bus and walked across to the next coach. People had quickly moved away from this coach towards the back end in an attempt to seek cover. As Bryant walked around it, he saw people scrambling to hide and shot at them. Bridget Cook was shot in the right thigh, causing the bone to fragment and the bullet to be lodged there. A coach driver, Ian McElwee, was hit by fragments of Cook's bone. Well, both were able to escape and survived. Bryant then quickly moved around another coach and fired at another group of people. Winifred Applin, running to get cover behind another coach, was fatally shot in the side. Another bullet grazed Yvonne Lockley's cheek, but she was able to enter one of the coaches to hide and survived. Some people then started moving away from the car park towards the jetty, but someone shouted that Bryant was heading that way, so they tried to double back around the coaches to where Bridget Cook had been shot. Bryant doubled back to where Janet and Neville Quinn, who owned a wildlife park on the east coast of Tasmania, were beginning to move towards Mason Cove and away from the buses. Bryant shot Janet Quinn in the back where she fell, unable to move, near Royce Thompson. Bryant then continued along the car park as people tried to escape along the shore. Doug Hutchinson was attempting to get into a coach when he was shot in the arm. He quickly ran around the front of the coach and then along the shore to the jetty and hid. Bryant then went into went to his vehicle, which was just past the coaches, and changed weapons to the self-loading rifle. He fired at Dennis Cromer, who was near the penitentiary ruins. Gravel flew up in front of her as the bullets hit the ground. Bryant then got in his car and sat there for a few moments before getting out again and going back to the coaches. Some people were taking cover behind cars in the car park, but because of the elevation, Bryant could see them, and the cars did not provide much cover. When they realised Bryant had seen them, they ran into the bush. He fired several shots, at least one hit a tree behind which someone was taking cover, but no one was hit. Bryant moved back to the buses where Janet Quinn lay injured from the earlier shot. Bryant shot her in the back, then left. She later died from her wounds. Bryant then went onto one of the coaches and fired a shot at Elva Gaylard, who was hiding inside, hitting her in the arm and chest and killing her. At an adjacent coach, Gordon Francis saw what happened and moved down the aisle to try and shut the door of the coach he was on. He was seen by Bryant and shot from the opposite coach. He survived but needed four major operations. Neville Quinn, husband of Janet, had escaped to the jetty area but returned to look for his wife. He had been forced to leave her earlier after Bryant shot her. Bryant exited the coach, spotting Quinn, chasing him around the coaches. 
Bryant fired at him at least twice before Quinn ran onto a coach. Bryant entered the coach and pointed the gun at Neville Quinn's face, saying, No one gets away from me. Quinn ducked when he realised Bryant was about to pull the trigger. The bullet missed his head, but hit his neck, momentarily paralysing him. After Bryant left, Quinn managed to find his wife, although she later, she later died in his arms. Mm. Neville Quinn was taken away by a helicopter and survived. Bryant fired at James Belasco, a US citizen, hitting a nearby car. Belasco had been attempting to film the shooter. Many people unable to use their parked cars were hiding or running along Jetty Road and did not know where Bryant was because the gunfire was extremely loud and difficult to pinpoint. At this time, Bryant had killed 26 people and injured 18. Bryant, Bryant then got back into his car and left, left the car park. Witnesses say he was sounding the horn and waving as he drove. Bryant drove along Jetty Road towards the toll booth where people were running away. Bryant passed by at least two people. Ahead of him were... How do you pronounce that? Naniti... Nanit. 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 Nanit Macaque and her children, Madeline and Alana. Uh, Age three and six. Age three and six, yeah, quite young. Nanette was carrying Madeline uh, and Alana was running slightly ahead. By this point, they had run approximately 600 metres from the car park. Brian opened his door and slowed down. Macaque moved towards the car, apparently thinking he was offering them help in escaping. Several more people... Witnessed this from further down the road. Someone recognised him as the gunman and yelled out, It's him! Bryant stepped out of the car, put his hands on uh, Macaque's shoulder and told her to get on her knees. She did so, saying, Please don't hurt my babies. Bryant shot her in the temple, killing her. Next he fired a shot at Madeline, which hit her in the shoulder, then shot her fatally through the chest. Bryant shot twice at Alana and she ran behind the tree, missing... He then walked up, pressed the barrel um, of the gun into her neck and fired, killing her instantly. Fuck, it's crazy stuff, eh? Three uh, and six, man. Hey? Three and six. I oh, know, man. It's full on. But as, as we said before, like, a lot of this is not... Like, it, it may have been common knowledge at the time, like, when it happened, yeah. but, like, we've, I felt like a lot of the... You just you just hear the number 35 people. You don't think a six-year-old. Yeah, when you, when you hear the... A three-year-old. Mm. Anyway, we're, we're almost done. Just bear with us. Uh, Brian fired... At some people hiding in a bush, but missed. Having seen the murders of the children, some people further up the road began running. Uh, they told drivers of cars coming down the road to go back. The people thought Bryant would head up the road, so in- instead they proceeded on foot down a dirt side road and hid in the bush. The car reversed up the road to the toll booth. Uh, Bryant drove up to the toll booth where there were several vehicles and blocked a 1980 BMW 7 Series owned by Mary Rose Nixon. Inside where Nixon, inside where Nixon, driver Russell James Pollard and passenger Helen and Robert uh, Salzman, an argument with Salzman ensured and Bryant took out his rifle and shot Salzman at point-blank range, killing him. Pollard emerged from the BMW and, and went towards Bryant, who, was, who shot him in the chest, killing him. More cars then arrived, but seeing this, the drivers were quickly able to reverse back up the road. Bryant then moved the BMW and pulled Nixon and Helen from the car and shot them dead. 
dragged their bodies onto the road. Bryant transferred ammunition, handcuffs, the AR-15 rifles, and fuel container to the BMW. Mary, Nixon, uh, Russell, Helen, and Robert, or the people Bryant, uh, was charged with killing at the toll booth. Another car then came towards the toll booth and Bryant shot at it. The driver, Graham Sutherland, was hit with, with glass. A second bullet hit the driver's door. Uh, Sutherland quickly reversed back up the road and left. Bryant then got into the BMW, leaving behind his Volvo uh, 244, including his Daewoo shotgun and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. At this point, Bryant had killed 33 and injured 19. Graham Sutherland, who had just been shot at in his car, reversed back up the road and drove to the service station close by, where he tried to inform people what was happening. Bryant drove up to the service station and cut off a white Toyota Corolla that was attempting to exit onto the highway. Glenn Pears was driving with girlfriend Zoe Hall in the passenger seat. Bryant quickly exited the car with his rifle in hand and tried to pull Hall from the car. Pears got out of the car and approached Bryant. Bryant pointed the gun at Pears and pushed him backwards eventually directing him into the now-open boot of the BMW, locking pairs inside. Bryant then moved to the passenger side of the Corolla as Hall attempted to climb over the driver's seat. Bryant raised his rifle and fired three shots, killing her. Many people around the service station witnessed this and ran to hide in nearby bushland. The service station attendant told everyone to lie down and he locked the main doors. He grabbed his rifle, but by the time he could retrieve some ammunition to load his gun, Bryant had left in the BMW. A police officer arrived several minutes later and then set out in pursuit of Bryant. Zoe Hall was the 34th victim killed. As Bryant drove down the seascape, he shot at a red Ford Falcon coming the other way, smashing its front windscreen. Upon arriving at seascape, he got out of his car, a Holden Frontier four-wheel drive vehicle, then approached seascape along the road. Those in the vehicle saw Bryant with his gun, but believed him to be rabbit hunting and slowed down as they passed him. Bryant fired into the car. The first bullet hit the bonnet and broke the throttle cable. He fired at least twice more into the car as it passed, breaking the windows. Uh, One bullet hit the driver, Linda White, in the arm. The car was going downhill, so it was able to roll down the road out of sight around a corner, despite its broken throttle cable. White swapped seats uh, with her boyfriend, Michael Wanders, uh, who attempted to drive the car but was unable to because of the broken throttle cable. Another vehicle then drove down the road carrying four people. It was not until they were almost adjacent to Bryant that they realised he was carrying a gun. Bryant shot at the car, smashing the windscreen. Douglas Horner, who was wounded by pieces of the windscreen, the car proceeded ahead where White and Maunders tried to get in, but Horner did not realise the situation and drove on. When they saw the, uh, that White had been shot, they called back, sorry, they came back and picked, him, picked them both up. Both parties then continued down to a local establishment called the Fox and Hound, where they called police. Yet another car drove past and Bryant shot at it. Shot at it. Uh, hitting the passenger, Susan Williams, in the hand. The driver, Simone Williams, uh, was struck by fragments. The driver of another approaching vehicle saw this and reversed back up the road. Bryant also fired at this car, hitting it but not injuring anyone. Bryant then got back into his BMW and drove down the seascape driveway to the house where the Martins 
his first victims lay dead. Sometimes after, sometime after he stopped, Bryant removed pairs from the boots and handcuffs and cut. What does that mean? Pairs Pair. from the boot. Took him out of the boot of the car. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, brought him into the house. At some point, he also set the BMW on fire. He's belie- he believed to have arrived at the house by around two p.m. So that takes us to the 29th of April, 1996. Bryant's capture. Bryant was captured the following morning when a fire started at the guest house, presumably set off by Bryant. Bryant taunted police to come and get him, but the police, believing the hostage was already dead, decided that the fire would eventually bring Bryant out. Bryant eventually ran out of the house with his clothes on fire, suffering burns to his back and buttocks. He was arrested and taken to hospital for treatment. It was discovered that Glenn Pears had been shot during or before the standoff and had died before the fire. The remains of the Martins were also found. It was also determined they had been shot and that Nolene Martin had suffered blunt force trauma. They both died before the fire. Witness accounts of the gunfire, as presented to the Supreme Court of Tasmania, placed the time of death of David and Nolene Martin as being approximately noon on the 28th of April. One weapon was found burnt in the house and the other was on the roof of the adjacent building building where police believed they had seen Bryant the night before. It's interesting. Both weapons had suffered from massive chamber blast pressure, possibly from the heat of the house fire. Yeah. It's a lot to take in. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. Let's leave it there. It's yeah. uh it's so that's like the majority of the events that went down. So that got, is that is the commonly known narrative. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what um is out there. If you want to look into it, that's what you're gonna find. Um so yeah, Oscar wrote a book. It's called Oscar The Zimmerman. Second Empty Chair, the Port Arthur Paradox. Yeah. Uh so our interview with him will be coming up shortly. Yeah, it's gonna be fantastic. So yeah. here we go. We'll see you very shortly. Two, one. Oscar Zimmerman, thanks for coming in. Thanks, guys. It's uh, it's actually amazing to be here. I feel like I'm stepping into the Playboy Mansion. Oh, sort of. <laughs> oh you're so kind. <laughs> wow, it's it's really real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it certainly is. A strange mate's universe. Yeah. So, how you been? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Oscar. I've been very good, thank you. Um, long story short, my family's from Rhodesia. Uh, grew up in Melbourne, and I live in Sydney at the moment. Uh, I'm a writer. I've published three books but probably the most famous one is the second empty chair because it uh yeah it taps into something that i feel really strongly about which is um travesty of justice justice denied um and given what we're going to talk about today and and probably in future episodes this is a massive rabbit hole that just has tentacles that spread out all over the world um, and involves some really, really nasty people. So it's an interesting topic, and there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stories about it. It's fascinating, isn't it? We, we literally yep. spent the last 40 minutes just with you just talking about it. I was like, we've got to get this. We've got to stop, <laughs> guys. We've got to start recording. Yeah. We were saying before when we were just going through the commonly accepted narrative for the day and the events that played out, it's just uh, how much of it's just what people take as fact. It's so much more into it 
when people start diving in and start yep. really investigating that there's just so much more to what happened on the day. Yep, absolutely. And the media would like you to think of it's just a really neat little package that's easy to digest, but there's so many unanswered questions, so many assumptions that it deserves more investigation and it certainly deserves a formal inquiry because the people who are guilty are still walking around today and they got away with it. So not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but how does that come about, a formal inquiry? Um, there's several things. The practical way would be for Martin himself to um, request a retrial or for what's called new and compelling evidence, fresh and compelling evidence. So somebody would have to come forward with evidence that conclusively disproves something. You would then need a lawyer to destroy their career (laughs) (laughs) and take it to a judge. You would then need a judge to destroy their career and all their friends <laughs> to say, yeah, let's crack open this smelling cesspool of treason. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so the odds are heavily... Oh, and then you would need the media to a- agree that their entire story of the last 22 years has been a fabricated lie and they gleefully danced in the blood of every gun violence victim since. Yeah and willfully perpetrated a lie. So the the odds are very greatly stacked against Martin. However, similar things have happened. If you look at the Innocence Project, there are people who've been in prison in America for 25 years, Mm -hmm. exonerated by DNA evidence or other things. So uh, it is possible. Um, You only have to look at Lindy Chamberlain, Sue Neil Fraser. Um, uh, There's another one... A blondie woman, Kelly Lane, I think her name was, from Melbourne. There's a bit, a, quite a few people who've been falsely convicted and then had their convictions overturned. Um, so it is possible. Very difficult job. Would need a lot of money. Would would need a you know a champion, a well-funded patron yeah. who really wants to screw over the Tasmanian government yeah. to to get that happening. But in the meantime, um, there's a lot of things going on. Social programming, if you want of a better term, all of these media, con- media um, inflamed rioting and antifa, mm-hmm. social agitation, which once you understand what happens, you can see the patterns everywhere. Mm-hmm. You can, I can see what the media is doing, the words they're using, the emotional adjectives. Everything is terrifying or horrifying or um, terrible. All impactful language. All impactful language, which. Um, if I if I use the term a microdose of trauma, mm, do you understand yeah, what? Like that, that, okay, that is, yeah. okay. Yeah. We can touch on it if you like, or in a separate episode. But if you read about what MK Ultra did, the whole point of MK Ultra was traumatizing people to then split their mind and mm. allow them to be controlled in different ways later on. Mm. So childhood trauma is a big factor in MK Ultra mind control. The same principles apply with the media microdosing people on trauma. In, or in any time there's a shooting in America, no matter what's happened, we get it in Australia and mm-hmm. they link it to Port Arthur. They've got they've embedded that trauma in the psyche of the general public and they're just microdosing us with it all the time. Mm. The problem with trauma is when you are given that dose of, of fear or anger, it triggers your fight or flight response. It certainly does, yeah. You and amygdala. You're correct. <clears throat> And what that does is it shuts down all your critical thinking and you revert to your training or your basic instincts. Mm-hmm. So when you are afraid or angry, 
it's very difficult to sit down and think critically about who's screwing you over and what you can do about it and then get out from under their thumb. Mm-hmm. So to keep the the, the, the the metaphor of the frog in a pot that's slowly boiling and slowly boiling and the frog doesn't notice it until it's too hot and it gets cooked, yeah. that's basically what's happening on a major scale all across the world. The media is keeping the people just boiling, 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 just keeping the temperature nice and a rolling boil, as the chefs would say, yeah. and it prevents people from thinking critically about what's going on and what they can do to take control of their lives away from other people who don't have their best interest at heart. And so, so is the, the end game to, to control? If you want a picture of the future, think of a boot stamping on a human face forever. That's what Orwell said in 1984. He wrote that in the 1950s. Did, George Orwell, 1984. Oh, yeah. Okay, That is what's coming. This country of ours, it's one of the wealthiest and peaceful. America, that's one of the wealthiest, freest and peaceful, are being dragged into Venezuela, Zimbabwe style. Mm. And it's being done deliberately for reasons which I can go into. Uh, Rebecca alludes to it a little bit in the book. My other books are essentially about that, the, uh, the, the energy crisis, that the, the, the cheap energy that's funded this industrial wonderland that we've had for the last 100 years or so. Sorry, guys, it's over. Yeah. And people are not going to be walking willingly into a low-energy future, mm. so they have to be dragged. And if you if the cities have to fall then what a better way than to trip it early mm. so the elites still have control of some of the resources and the police force so mm. they can manage the outcome. Mm. Um, it's like a football player. If you've got the guy running at you, are you going to just stand there and let him charge into you or are you going to jump forward so that you can control the motion of the tackle? I'll do a Benji Marshall and just step around him, you know what I mean? <laughs> you, you can try that, and that's a, not a bad strategy. Yeah. Try to step around what's coming. Yeah. Good luck with it. <laughs> but for the elites who have seen this coming, we talked about they employ chess players who can see. You know, it's no secret that this is coming. Mm. Um, okay, these are some inevitabilities. These are some possibilities. These are some probabilities. Let's build a strategy around how to protect ourselves. Mm. That self-preservation is, uh, you know, a basic human trait. And it just so happens that these people control a lot of the world's resources, a lot of the world's media. And so we are being like lemmings herded off a cliff to leave more for them. Mm. It's that's that's simple. And a part of that, a part of keeping us distracted from what's coming, um, like, for instance, before COVID-19, before the Black Lives Matter problems what was the big crisis facing humanity fires those bloody fires the fires and what was the fires cause no no no, not world war three what was the fires caused by oh mate i don't know if you heard our podcast we we got conspiracies (laughs) on that yeah but um climate change okay climate change climate change climate change Mm. and what and and what is the what what is um i'm trying to say what is the definition what is the scientific consensus what is the absolutely uncontroversial the the facts about climate change that there's absolutely no debate about nothing a lot of it's up for debate there's a lot yeah, of criticism yeah, right it is a typical debate let me explain another problem that's facing humanity mercury in the ocean okay there's mm-hmm. a crap ton of mercury in the ocean mm-hmm. it is highly toxic and it is climbing up the food chain mm-hmm. and it is poisoning people at an increasing rate who eat the fish yeah. out of the ocean okay there's no scientific confusion there's no debate about that. The, the facts are much more clear than climate change is, right? So, so how's the, the mercury rising in the waters? Because it, it sinks to the bottom and the little fish eat it 
and then the little fish get eaten by bigger fish and the big, those fish get eaten by bigger fish and those fish get caught by Japanese fishermen mm. and sent to market. And the mercury stays in them. Mm, okay. And then the people eat the fish with the mercury in it and it, it never comes out of your system. So it's all, when you eat mercury, it just stays in your system. It all adds up. It all adds up. Compounds. That's why I only eat yeah. KFC, mate. That's Sorry. probably worse for <laughs> you than mercury say. fish. <laughs> Call it dirty bird for a reason. My, 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 the point of this is, this is right. Yeah. There is a way to remove mercury from the ocean. Okay, it's expensive, but it's just a chemical process. You suck up the water, treat it. It's horrendously expensive, but no more expensive than climate change solutions. Mm. Would be better for the environment. Would save a lot of fish, and would actually help humans and save medical costs of treating them for mercury poisoning like there's a massive amount of benefits for everybody of cleaning up the mercury in the ocean yeah but that doesn't get a mention no it's no. all let's just spend billions of dollars on wind farms and let's ignore the fact that the media that's pushing this is owned by the same shareholders that own the companies that are going to make the wind turbines oh, come on guys yeah. is it really that hard <laughs> Crazy, isn't it? Not yeah. to mention the wind turbines don't even make that much of a yeah, power turn. It, co- it consumes more energy to, to make run. a wind turbine than it's ever going <laughs> to yeah. generate. Yeah, that's, that's all. Um, Netherlands don't care. Put one every three metres. Yeah. Okay, so but, let's... but I want to start in Warunga and Manly. That's where we need to start putting the wind farms. Those inner city champagne socialists who all vote for climate change yeah, so here you go. yeah. put it in your yeah. put it in your farm. backyard watch them backtrack exactly watch yeah. them backtrack okay. uh, who's who's a zali stegel i want wind farms in her backyard <laughs> that's the first yeah if we've got to have them start there okay, so that's, anyway let's... so that's sort of the overview of there's a massive backdrop to all of this and that this is port, port arthur is a key player in this whole drama mm. of what's going on in the world and how are we being manipulated to a ignore it, and B, play to the interests of the elites who do this. Names like Rothschild, Soros, Rockefeller, Metnich. Mm. Um, these these are families that go back beyond Charlemagne. And they've had wealth. They survived the Black Death. So the, the plague in, in Europe killed yeah, a whole bunch yeah. of people. But the people who were still alive went down to the courthouse and the records book and said, okay, Tom's dead. So, Dean, you have his house as well as yours. And Bill's dead, so Jamie, you can have his farm. Legit, that's what happened. I didn't know that. Well, yeah, they're the survivors. You've got to run the thing, otherwise the feral pests will get in and it'll go stagnant. So the land ownership then got concentrated in the hands of the survivors Mm -hmm. and exclusively concentrated in the hands of the rich, connected people at the time. Three generations later, the population's rebounded, but the new people are renting where they live (laughs) come on this is just basic you know you imagine if there was a plague that went through australia and killed one in five people all those houses are empty Mm. somebody's got to own them they're not just gonna sit empty wouldn't the government like take them in you know yeah well now the government would but there was no government back then so at at the time yeah the government did and if, if well hopefully most of the people in government would die in the pandemic but let's not go there so one can dream mate we can all dream what's that meme the guy said well i'm basically libertarian so screw the feds i'm being facetious to all the asio agents listening to this podcast i'm only being facetious um but that principle is what's going it's you know divide and conquer divide and rule figure out what's going on 
Uh, like there is some military research that I've done in, in researching the book. We'll talk about it in a minute. I have a friend who is active service. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're trying to assault a fixed position, you don't just charge up into the machine guns like World War One or Gallipoli. You flow like water around the flanks mm-hmm. and attack where they're not defending. The same applies in business. You don't charge against, you know, you, you don't take action directly against opposition or problem you figure out where their weaknesses are and go around them strategize strategize mm-hmm. the same principles apply and we are governed ruled controlled by people human beings with failings who have their own best interests at heart and they do not align mm-hmm. with our best interests so but it's, the irony of it all is though like I, we love this that's why you're on but the irony of it is this happened since the dawn of time control you know what i mean yep I'm not denying that it's uh it's something that we all have to yep. deal with there's always someone above us controlling us even to this day you know what i mean like your nine yep. to five work life you write a big book about it too yeah yep. yeah <laughs> give it a catchy name <laughs> <laughs> but yeah in your book um early on that i really enjoyed you went talked to those two brothers in the book <laughs> um and they they go into the south african military and mm-hmm. it's very detailed yep so i'm thinking you must have been in the military mate. <laughs> no sure. no I, I i didn't serve um but i have like i said i have friends who did yeah. i also have a very vivid imagination mm. and i have done a lot of research in into that uh the the brothers do not exist the, the brothers are a figment of my imagination yeah. because we needed an, an antagonist who was not Martin Bryant but looked like him. Yeah. And there, the, there are two brothers uh, who are associated with this whole thing called Warren and Benjamin yeah. um, who were there at the time. They've been accused of being the shooter but I don't believe they were, it's possible. But I don't see that. Yeah. I don't see this being necessary for them to do to, to, to be involved. Um, but they 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 look similar to Martin. They're, they're white with an arrow face and blonde hair. Yeah. Um, but the the kind of military training that's described in there and the kind of conflict is based on the Rhodesian Bush War and the South African uh, Angola War. Which you are uh, you descend, as you're saying, from uh, uh, Rhodesia, yeah? My, my family's from Rhodesia, uh, moved, left there in the 70s. Yeah. But um, the, the, um, the, the, the House of Horrors training, I'm, I'm not aware specifically of anything like that being done in an actual military situation. In the book, it was kind of set up by the guys themselves. The yeah. special forces had done it themselves. Um, it's like a makeshift, op- I'm sorry, makeshift obstacle course. Wasn't correct. It? Um, there are kill houses that the SAS are and the British SAS and the Delta Force all have kill houses like what's described where they do live fire training. Um, there's one in Sydney where the, the SAS do it. They've got brick walls with steel plates on the inside mm. and then a layer of rubber further inside so they can fire live rounds and the live rounds get stuck in the rubber and don't ricochet. Oh, but they also okay. don't penetrate through the wall. Yeah. Um, so they'll have instances where you'll be sitting in a chair with two dummies beside you and the lights out mm. and suddenly they'll do a charge on the door, blow the door in and just shoot the dummies beside you Whew, with, live, with live ammo. Yeah, and this is specifically designed uh, to have them getting used to being shot yeah, at well, by the, and, and the desensitizing. desensitizing and trusting their teammates and being able to do that at a split second. Mm. Um, there was a, a story come up the other day some uh, American special forces were in Afghanistan. They blew a breaching charge on the wall. 
and went in and five Taliban terrorists were lifting their rifles at the guy, the first man in the room. And he didn't have a rifle. All he had was a pump-action Remington 700 shotgun. Yeah. And in less than three seconds, he killed all of them, cool. took their heads off. He's Close crazy. range with a shotgun. You, he's not thinking. Mm. Like, he, he's just defaulted. That's his amygdala. He's yeah. just... Boop, 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 boop. Saved all their lives. But that's the sort of that's the level of training these guys have, and it's the realistic training that they do. Now, is the screaming baby, the flamethrowers, all of that, I've included that's the sort of thing the CIA would do with mind control yeah, trauma. Yeah, yeah. But, like, it's not out of the realms of possibility that some special forces guys would create something like that to test themselves against that sort of trauma because that's the sort of situations they're going into. They're busting into houses where there are screaming children. They're busting into houses that are on fire. So, um, and and what I also wanted to do was to try and give the character a a humility, like a a human flaw, where he's not just an invulnerable action hero from a Hollywood movie. He's been traumatised. He's been through this training that's broken him down from the innocent farm boy and turned him into a robotic mindless killer that will follow orders instinctively. And so when his orders say, go and shoot 35 people, okay, I can do that. And he just... But then he uh, he gets a whole new level of trauma, doesn't he? (laughs) We won't throw throw away, we've got to read the book. But yeah, it's a really interesting chapter, not too far after all that. But anyway, let's... um, definitely feeds in, it's what you're saying, feeds into his supposed low IQ to someone who can switch into someone who knows how to reload. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, Martin Bryant's low IQ. Yeah, he barely knew one end of the rifle from the other. Yeah. Yeah. IQ was 66, wasn't it? Martin Martin Bryant supposedly has. Yep. Supposedly. Well, let's go into that. This this is, uh, we'll go deep on Martin's uh, confession video, which is very interesting. Sunday night done a. um, His version of events. Released. Would they they originally release those videos? Probably not. Who who had those videos? I don't know. I've asked the Tasmanian police and the Tasmanian Justice Department for a copy of the videos on the assumption, on the reasoning that you've already released them to the media, so they're in the public domain anyway. Mm -hmm. Can I have a copy? Didn't even get a response, not even an acknowledgement that my messages had been received. It's no good. So um, oh, what I've got here is a copy, a printed copy of the transcript from that prison interview. Which well, we was don't need been, your video, we've got your transcript. Well, here, the, the thing with the video is it's been chopped up and selectively edited yeah. in order to give a false picture. And to paint as if Martin is confessing to what he's alleged to have done, when in fact that is not true. And when you read the transcript, um, he he does confess to something in the transcript, but what he confesses to is not what he was convicted for and not what he was charged with Mm -hmm. by the police. And in the court documents, the prosecutor even says that this statement is, inverted commas, in contrary, in contradiction of all the facts as we know them, mm. end quote, which is kind of a weasel word, like we know the facts, but we're not going to tell them all. Yeah. Uh, the prosecutor then went on to completely misrepresent Martin's own timeline, in uh, which we can wasn't get onto. What he said from the second. get-go, he said he wasn't even there. Correct. He's out surfing. Yep. So from a, we've, you guys have already been through the official story, the, yep. the official timeline. Yep. What I've got is a map here of the peninsula, which I might get you to take a photo of, and you can put it in the show notes yeah, um, yeah, we'll, of we'll this. Yeah, pop it up on the screen for everyone. So in the, Martin says 
that they ask him, what did you do that morning? And he says, I went surfing at Roaring Beach. Roaring Beach is down in the, absolutely the middle of nowhere, the bottom of the bottom of the peninsula, south of Hobart. Yeah. The next thing below Roaring Beach is Antarctica. Cool. Yep. Yeah. So, and they said, what, when did you get there? And he, he said, about 11, when it warmed up. Now, people have taken that to mean that he left his house in Hobart at 11. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't think so, and I'll explain my reasoning in a minute. So he basically says he left, left home and he went to Roaring Beach for a swim. And then he came back to Newbina for a toasted sandwich and a cup of coffee. And then he went past Port Arthur, past Seascape, to the Fortescue Bay turnoff. This is all from the, uh, the, the transcript. Okay, so he's coming around that bit, bottom bit of the peninsula in a counterclockwise direction. What the prosecutors have said is that about 10.30, 10.40, he shot and killed David and Sally Martin inside Seascape. Yeah. And those shots were witnessed by Andrew Simmons. Andrew Simmons was across the road. He was a manager at the Port Arthur Historic Site. And he was due to go to that seminar for all the managers, which was to be held at Swansea, up in, uh, about two hours, two and a half hours north. So there's another question. This management seminar that was held for the top managers didn't really have an agenda. Mm-hmm. It was just a, a, a nebulous concept. We're going to talk about change management at Port Arthur. Uh, be there at, uh, in the morning. And he was supposed to get a lift from a workmate at 10.30. Mm-hmm. So it's 10.40. He's looking at his watch saying, where's the car arriving? Bang, bang. He hears two shots from across the road. And in his witness statement, he's very clear because he says that, that was I knew the time because I was waiting for a lift. The car arrives, drives them off. He forgets all about it until later on in the day when they hear there's been a shooting. That miraculously, all the senior government bureaucrats were not on site when it happened. Yeah. Only the low-level employees were there to take the bullets and the trauma. But uh, let's sideline that for a minute. So 10.40, they allege, it turned 30 to 10.40, uh, Martin shot David and Sally Martin in Seascape. The problem is Chris Hammond served Martin with $15 petrol at Tarana at between 10.30 and 10.45 a.m., and says it was unusual because he paid with the ten to five dollar note out of his pants pocket. He didn't have a wallet, and okay. it was kind of it was something unusual. Everybody else uses a wallet. This guy just pulls cash out of his pocket, stuck in his mind. So for Martin then to get to Seascape, he would have had to travel south, directly south down the Arthur Highway to Seascape to shoot David and Sally Martin. Instead, he turns right and he goes all the way across here, and about eleven o'clock, he's at Roaring Beach. 20, 30 kilometres away. So he was nowhere in the area when David and Sally Martin experienced some gunshots. I don't know if that's when they were killed or not, but the two shots were fired at Seascape. Mm. We don't actually know when David and Sally Martin were killed. All we know is that Sally had her head crushed in. Can you give us a quick overview? I don't believe we we give an overview of of why he had a potential vendetta for those two. Um, The... The potential vendetta is a fabrication of Paul Mullins. Okay. And Martin himself in the transcript says that he had no ill will towards David and Sally Martin. Really? Correct. The issue is Dave, uh, Martin used to associate with a farmer called Roger Lana. Yeah. Roger Lana had a wife named Marion. Mm-hmm. For some reason, Martin liked Marion. 
a lot. Good sort, I would imagine, then. And because Martin is what we would today describe as Asperger's, mm. he has no social filter. Martin doesn't know what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. He was once on a plane flying somewhere and they served ice creams as part of the dessert. He leans over to the woman sitting next to him and pats her stomach and says, oh, you shouldn't really eat the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> you had enough. Okay. So... Okay, well. it's kind of funny in some you just laughed, okay? <laughs> but you sorry, wouldn't say that to somebody. No, right? I obviously, okay? yeah, yeah. So that's the difference between you and him. You have a filter mm. and he doesn't. It just comes out of his mouth, okay? Mm. So now we understand that. He probably could have got some treatment. Yeah. But back in the 70s and 80s, everybody just thought, you're the village idiot and stayed yeah. away from him. Yeah. So Martin really liked Marion Lana mm. and this naturally made her husband uneasy. Mm. So the Lana farm had land next to it mm. and the land next to the Lana farm came up for sale mm. and Martin's dad thought about buying it and putting some cattle on it mm. to make some extra money. However, David and Sally Martin were successful in buying that piece of land instead of his own dad. Yeah. Can you imagine what Martin would have been like living next door to this older <laughs> mum yeah. that he really liked. So he had that, he had an interest Always there. Always coming over for a bit of sugar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, I don't know what she, Roger obviously wasn't too happy. There's no, I haven't been able to speak to Marion and there's no witness statements from her, but you can reconstruct the, the, the story yeah. from that. So this vendetta against the Martins is, is a fabrication to paint Martin Bryant in a bad light. And he, he in there says, I have no no problem with it. The, I was only disappointed because Dad wasn't able to buy the farm next door to Marion. Mm. That's it. Um, but the, the, the common opinion of it is that the, he um, he killed those two because he wanted that. They're property, isn't it? And he wouldn't sell it to them, but they were selling that, it. That's, a, that's an assertion which Martin does not make. Yeah, yeah so that's um, th th and th this is some things that are consistent around this place. There's a lot of hearsay, yeah. a lot of rumor, a lot of innuendo that when you actually look in and try and find some substantiation, it's just not there. Mm. Does that mean it's false? I don't know. Yeah. So we've got to have like a scale, a sliding scale of impossible to verified by multiple witnesses. And in the middle, there's a lot of grey area and some things are more possible than others. Some things are more likely than others. Mm. Of course, it would help if we had a formal inquiry <laughs> that brought out all the evidence yeah. and yeah. let us examine it. But it's been locked away for another 75 years. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, you could... The media went and interviewed Ivan Malat. Mm. Chopper Reed wrote a book, appeared on TV. You've got it up there. You've got it up there. Yeah, it's a great book. How come the evidence about Port Arthur's locked away for another 75 years. I thought you were just mucking around. It's literally... Yeah. Really? Yep. How does that come about? Uh, originally, it was all locked away for 25 years. Yeah, but who makes that After, decision that, oh, we're not talking about this for another 25 uh, years? The Justice Department, Tasmanian Ooh. Justice Department. So they put a moratorium on everything for 25 years in 1996-97. That was due to expire in 2023. So myself and Paul Moder and a bunch of other people are like... Gearing Sweating up. Sweating on it, going, 20, <laughs> a year. <laughs> you know, this is like people trying to get into, you know, um, the the JFK files that yeah. were d recently um, declassified. People are interested in getting access to it. Mm. And then last year, the Tasmanian archiving people, the, the, the bureaucrats in charge of archiving everything, mm. um, one of the women gave a seminar and she was talking about 
what a hard life it is being an archivist. And you may not think it's an e- a difficult job, but it actually is because, for instance, we recently had to digitise all the Port Arthur evidence and scan all the photos mm. and all of this gore, and their poor people had their hands shaking. Mm. And it's so all the physical evidence has been destroyed. It's all been digitised onto photos or film or audio. And that's locked away for another 75 years where only the police commissioner can see it. That's commissioner only. That one? Pretty gnarly. That's so plus they probably if, have to pick and choose so, what they So they, they digitised it all but got rid of the original records. Get out. Yep. Get out. Yep. So that's my, massive. My, so, okay. so for instance, um, when the shooter shot up the cafe, he left behind a tray with an empty plate, cutlery, and an empty drink cup mm. and an empty can of Solo, mm. which would all be covered in his DNA and saliva. Yeah, and they didn't bother to check it, did they? Well, we don't know because we don't have it there. Yeah. But, but even you, when the time happened, because that was a... You, you would think... Time, you, so here's the thing, right? If it went to trial, mm. they would have had to bring that out to say, Your Honour, here's the DNA testing from the thing. It matches Martin Bryant. Case closed. Mm-hmm. You know, here's his fingerprints from the gun, tr- tr- um, trigger, etc. But because he changed his plea to guilty, there was no examination of the evidence. They just got up in court, told a story, and the judge said, 35 life sentences. Nice and neat. The only thing neater than that would have been if he'd actually died in the fire. (laughs) And then there wouldn't have even been a trial. It would have just been, oh, he's guilty. Thank goodness he's dead. Case closed. Which I believe was the the whole point of it all. Yes. Mm. So from a records point of view, I'm not going to be alive to see it even if I don't get killed by somebody. Hence why your face isn't on camera, and, mate. And made it look They're like not a suicide. You. You'll be fine. Seth Rich. Seth, we're on your Seth, whoever that is. <laughs> Who's that? Write, it, write down Seth Rich. Seth Rich. Yep. Um, Paul Walker. Not not from the... Uh, yeah. From what's he? Yeah. The, the movie? Yeah. He did charity work in Haiti after the earthquake with the Clinton Foundation. And he was due to testify about all the misappropriation that he saw. And tragically, (gasps) his car crashed. Oh, my God, he can't testify. Just like Seth Rich was a campaign worker for Hillary Clinton and was Uh, about to testify against her. Seth Rich, Fox News, lawsuit dismissed. Mm. Yeah, That's another rabbit hole that we're not going to go down. I'll keep the tab up for later, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... um, So, who... Who makes the decision to lock it away for another seventy-five? Years? I know who you said it makes the decision, but what warrants that? Yeah, the actual length of time reason. and what brings it up to be locked away for another seventy-five yeah, years? Sure. Um, back in the days of the Roman Empire, there was a slave revolt, I think, on Corsica, and the slaves were being treated ro- wrongly according to Roman law. Yeah, and had grievances that were not addressed, so they revolted and overthrew their masters. So the Senate sends out a delegation to sort it out, get the slaves back to work. And famously, this has gone down in history, you can look it up. The guy, the delegate turns up and the slaves have a meeting with him and they quote all the laws that are being broken by the Roman authorities. And he responds to them, why do you quote laws to us who have swords? Oh, I like that one. Okay. Chairman Mayo said power flows from the barrel of a gun. That it does, yeah. So to answer your question, we can do whatever the hell we want and there's nothing you little peasants can do about it. So get back to work and pay taxes that we can then spend on whatever the hell we want. 
with no oversight. We own this island. We were given it by the British government when they settled it, and we are in control, and you are not. Mm-hmm. Essentially, that's yeah. that's what that's what we're up against. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. If you want a biblical quote, we struggle against spiritual wickedness in high places. Mm-hmm. That's, that's like awesome. you said, it's been around forever. Yeah, yeah. But at the moment, it's affecting me. <laughs> yeah. It's affecting you. It's affecting your listeners, mm-hmm. and they deserve to know what's going on and they deserve to have a chance to do something about it mm-hmm. so that's what i'm doing i guess like i have to ask this question because everyone will be thinking it uh if he's like killed the people the toll with um the bmw mm-hmm. why wouldn't we assume let's say assume that he done the other shooting at broad arrow cafe because if he's out shooting you know what I mean? I don't follow the. I don't. Know. So like, so, so it's like, you you believe? Do you believe he he shot the people in the BMW? Do you believe he didn't shoot anyone whatsoever? No, I don't believe Martin Bryant shot anybody. Oh, at all. really? Okay. No, no. The kidnapping in the BMW at Fortescue Bay, he admits to, mm. but, but that's he, odd, isn't but it? he didn't shoot anybody. He he, he, he waved the gun around. I believe that he thought he was in a movie. I believe that his handlers told him and in my revised book this is the the way that i say it mm-hmm. and in the current book that you've got um warren just tells him a story that he believes and then that translates into mm-hmm. what he believes mm-hmm. but uh, the man and the woman and the child when he's in under the siege jamie whoever's on the phone refers to him as rick mm-hmm. terry mccarthy is the negotiator calls him and he says now there's three people in the building with you is that right and he says yeah that's me rick uh, that's rick and david and sally Mm. and jamie actually says to him oh what don't you count me as a person Mm. and the the negotiator oh yeah yeah of course we do yeah but i'm talking about the hostages Mm. okay so rick is who he's referred to but the guy who was taken by the gunman from the toll booth was glenn pears like we know who he is and his traveling companion was zoe hall was shot by the gunman in the white toyota corolla Mm -hmm. so the whole the the, what's described in the official story Mm. is nothing to do with what actually happened Mm. because the person who was kidnapped from the toll booth was not in the BMW. He was not driving the BMW. The person who was kidnapped from the toll booth was driving a white Toyota Corolla. Mm. But Martin is admitting to taking the driver of the BMW and putting him in its boot and stealing the BMW. Yeah. So n- what he's confessing to, in inverted commas, is not what he's been charged with. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So... Um, well, I guess he... He ruined himself by admitting it all, though, didn't he? But but the interesting thing I noticed about um, Martin Bryant when I started looking into it, he it's almost like a child in a man's body, yeah. like his brain, like he, the way he's giggling all the time, the way he yep. like sort of shows like a lack of remorse for his actions. Yep. Can I can oh, I yep. expand on that? Yes, absolutely agree. A child in a man's body, and that's substantiated by other other people. He also has no filter. So Martin doesn't know what's appropriate and what's not. Mm. Third of all, he has no memory of killing anybody. Mm. So he's treating it all like a joke. Mm. Fourthly, he's not taking the police seriously because he knows he didn't do anything wrong. Mm. 
he also has no idea what the consequences of him doing well, as we are. discussed earlier the, the very low IQ yeah um so he uh, and, and you have to. You also have to understand that a grin and laughing is a natural stress response to incredulity. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing you can write down is the Darren Brown assassin video. I've shared this before on my Facebook. D e double r e n Brown is a British TV hypnotist. Yeah. And long story short, he hypnotizes somebody to shoot Stephen Fry. The actor yeah it's the first thing that comes up when i when i yep. search the language of the stephen fry anyway. okay okay da- and darren and brown darren yeah. brown okay and that is they're basically recreating sirahan sirahan shooting robert f kennedy there was a woman in a polka dot dress sirahan followed her into a place of darkness and the next thing he knew his hand was being crushed oh. as the secret surgeon service agents were trying to get the gun out of his hand yeah, yeah. after he'd shot bobby kennedy Mm-hmm. And Surahan is still in prison. He cannot be released because he cannot express remorse mm-hmm. because he has no recollection of doing it. And the kid that they hypnotise to do it, later they get him in to watch a video of him standing up shooting Stephen Fry. The look on the kid's face is the same as Martin Bryant looking at the photos of his Volvo at the toll booth. Yeah. He's like, I didn't leave it there. I drove past. I left it at Fortescue. This has got to be a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I can understand why he's laughing and giggling because he has no memory of it. Yeah. Because his last memory is knocking on the door of Seascape about 12.35. Mm. And then the next thing he knows, there's a vast explosion. So if he was, in fact, drugged with Rohypnol, um, I'm not sure if I said it on or if we were talking before, I've been contacted by a young woman who has tried these sort of drugs. She said she took Rohypnol thinking it was something else Mm. and lost two days. She has no memory of those two days. Just blank, yeah. And that's consistent with giving Martin uh, a drug like that. And if the plan was for him to die in the fire, it would have been really nice and neat. And the only problem was they didn't give him enough to keep him knocked out. And he woke up and crawled out of that vast inferno and lived... Yeah. To tell the tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the I've been trying to track down the people who owned the cafe next to the school at Nubina. Because if they can verify that they served him a cup of coffee and a toasted sandwich about 12 o'clock on that Sunday, then that substantiates his alibi mm-hmm. that he was nowhere in the area when David and Sally Martin were killed. And that yeah. would be fresh and compelling evidence. Um, I've tried various avenues. The the, the 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 little tuck shop there has now closed and moved been moved across the road and is a new structure yeah. with a new owner. Yeah. So I don't know where those yeah. people are. It's quite possible they've been killed. It's quite possible they're elderly and they've died of natural causes. Mm. It's quite possible that they got a visit from John from the Attorney General's department who advised them not to talk to it anybody mm. ever or they would be charged with child pornography and thrown in jail for the rest of their lives mm. you know in anything's possible yeah. um i was having a chat with a guy this is unrelated i was having a chat with a guy the other day about software um he's an australian software developer and he has been visited by a guy called john from the attorney general's department making sure he builds a back door into his software so that the federal police can access anybody who's using his software oh really and that's standard procedure mm-hmm. 
Um, there was a change in our own legislation recently that allowed that like formally allowed that to happen, and his mate, who runs a cloud computing solution business, mm. immediately had to move his business offshore in order to avoid the jurisdiction of these intrusive laws. Yeah, right. So it is entirely possible that there are people around who will... I vaguely remember hearing something about that. that that's, yeah. that's like pretty recent, the last sort of like five years or so. Oh, in the last two years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, there's, there's another story of a, a guy who worked in a, a, a weapons importer in Australia who had contracts with the police and supplying the police and mil- military with things. Mm-hmm. And there was this employee who'd come in a couple of days, was a bit creepy, and the guy asked the boss, you know, who, who's this guy? The boss laughed and said, oh, that's the CIA guy. He comes in once every now and then to check our records. Jeez Louise. Whether it's legit or not, or whether the boss was just taking the piss, I don't know. Mm. But if, it would not surprise me if the federal government has these people wandering around like Agent Smith in the Matrix mm. with their ears open, listening for things that are happening and keeping tabs on all, you know, all kinds of things. Um, the, the SACPAV, the Standing Advisory Committee for Prevention of Armed Violence, mm-hmm. ran several exercises in southern Tasmania in the years leading up to Port Arthur. Yeah, I read about that. Um, the, the other interesting coincidences, like how many coincidences do you need before you realise something smells? SACPAV had done a whole bunch of um, exercises the Premier of Tasmania had stepped down from his post to be the Minister for Tourism. It was like one year prior, wasn't it? In, in Ray Groom, yeah. yeah. What, unprecedented. Mm. Why on earth would a Premier relinquish their power to a subsidiary portfolio? Mm. Um, there was a seminar for journalists of all the worldwide print media on the Sunday, not in Sydney, not in Melbourne, not even in Canberra, in Hobart. On a Sunday, mm. there was a seminar for trauma surgeons at the Royal Hobart Hospital on a Sunday. That's the one that took me down the rabbit hole. And just before lunch, just before all these doctors are about to eat lunch, mm. they have a session on gunshot wounds. Mm. It's... Yeah, I see why you're writing books about it. There mate. were three. <laughs> how much it's is it? Crazy, how it? much does it cost to keep a rescue helicopter on standby with a pilot sitting there in the cafe drinking coffee, the insurance, the fuel, the lease of the machine? Mm, okay. On that Sunday, there was three, not one, not two, but three. And is that was helicopters that, is on that, standby? How long is that? The first time it happened, or that happened weeks prior? That I, I don't know the answer to that, but certainly on that day, yeah. um, it's odd, especially for some. Sure, and, and and of its own, maybe the police had an exercise and they wanted rescue helicopters in case yeah. there was an accident. It's possible, mm-hmm. but all of these other things that add up—you've got the air-conditioned morgue truck that was built shortly before, was very useful at the time, mm-hmm. and then sold off afterwards. Why wouldn't you keep it on if it had been useful? And that was only organised. Yeah, a year or so so prior prior to it, yep. Um, The state government had taken over the Port Arthur site and bought the cafe off Jim Laycock. So the Broad Arrow Cafe had been privately owned Mm -hmm. and the Port Arthur Authority took it over and did a renovation about six months prior to the shooting. And Jim Laycock got the money and bought the Kodak shop out on the the street on the Port 
Arthur when Highway. When Kodak was still kicking. When Kodak was still a thing, yes. And it ran a business with his son-in-law, um, selling film and souvenirs and things yeah. to the tourists. No, well, not a problem. But he had known, he knew Martin Bryant by sight because Bryant had been in the cafe when he was a child, causing trouble, being obnoxious, minor shoplifting. And Jim Laycock had actually banned him from the cafe. Really? Yep. So Laycock knew what Martin looked like. Mm-hmm. And the state, so the state government owned this thing. They then removed post-traumatic stress disorder from their insurance policy for all state government employees. That's where my ears, uh, ears perked up. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was last night we were out drinking. He's like, man, I can't get over that. Yeah. <laughs> so then the, the shooting happens and... Elaine Howard and Nicole Burgess are working in the gift shop. They're employees of the state government and the emergency exit door behind them doesn't open to let them out. The lock was faulty and I've since learned that the door had actually been nailed shut by the authorities at Port Arthur in order to... Look, we can't afford to get the lock fixed, so let's just make it not a door (laughs) so then we can get the lock fixed later. Um, Two weeks before the shooting happened they got a delivery of 200 army surplus blankets really? th- that Wendy Skur, the senior first aid officer, had to then put away in storage. And she was annoyed because she'd done an assessment of their medical supplies mm. and she believed in her good experience that they had enough supplies to cater for any problem. If one of the cruise ships sank in the harbour, they had enough, you know, if there was a fire in the kitchen, they had enough supplies. Mm. And then... She's complaining about the door lock on the emergency door not being operable and you can't afford a couple of hundred bucks for a locksmith to come out and fix it and yet we've just been delivered 200 blankets. She was right to be sus, wasn't she? Can you imagine what she was thinking about the day after the shooting when all those blankets were very valuable Mm. and all of them were used and yet she came in and found seven bodies stacked up like firewood in front of that door, her friends and co-workers trying to get out out, and Mm. they couldn't. So she made a she made a lot of fuss about it and travelled around doing seminars, raising awareness of what happened and the cover up that the Port Arthur Authority then did afterwards. What's her yep. name again? Sorry, Wendy Skur, S C U W R. Very brave woman. Got threatened many times, and passed away recently. So rest in peace, Wendy. We will continue your legacy. Um, yeah, she was really narky about the response and the the lack of counselling, the lack of resources for the victims. Yeah. Um, the, the, all, all the money that was promised just disappeared into the state government. The the whole thing is completely corrupt. Speak, speaking of money, Oscar, I know you know a bit about this. Helen Harvey. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Helen Harvey for a sec. This is an interesting one. It's got everything to do with it. Okay, long very long story short, um, the guy. Oh, now you've said it. I've forgotten his name. Um, David, 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 it'll come to me in a minute, arrives in Melbourne in the 1800s, um, starts a lottery. Melbourne is run by religious conservatives who don't like gambling, so they kick him out. He comes to Sydney, starts the Tattersall's Club, which is now on the corner of, it's in York Street or somewhere, just up from Circular Quay. Yeah. Uh, has a roaring time. Uh, horse racing, money's flowing, uh, times are good, f- people are gambling. The Again, Sydney, close him down. He tries the same thing in Brisbane, same thing happens. So he goes to Tasmania, and he's learned a thing or two now. Mm-hmm. Since being kicked out by the authorities, 
he learns that you need to get the authorities on side. So when he sets up in Tasmania, he basically strikes a deal with the government to share the revenue, which they're happy to do. No worries. So the lottery in Tasmania is run by this guy, and he has no heirs, no family. So when he dies, he leaves the whole estate to various people in Mm -hmm. shares. One of those people was David Hasty Harvey, his main lottery manager, the, the organizer who organized the whole thing. David Hasty Harvey had six children, three boys and three girls, and they were all very wealthy, farming, horse racing, breeding. Yeah, the people you see at the Melbourne Cup with the trophy and all kissing each other. Yeah. They're all friends. They all know each other. They see each other at the races. They drink with each other. They send their kids to the same schools. They, they do business together with the government. They're all hand in hand. The government wants to do something. We'll help you fund it so long as we get a cut from the taxes. Yeah. All of these things. So the youngest son become is not a farmer or a racehorse breeder. He's a plumber and electrician. Then he marries a young Polish girl called Hilza just before the Great Depression, 1930s. His name's Lorimer Harvey. Marries a Polish girl, and their daughter, Helen, is born five months later. No messing around. Do the math. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he did the right thing by her, married her. They had this girl. And then he died in the 1950s natural causes, leaving his wife and his widow and daughter. Mm. His share, his one-sixth share of, sorry, one-fifth, because one of his sisters had passed away. So one-fifth share of the father's estate went to Hilza, his widow, Mm. and young Helen, who had developmental difficulties, just like Martin, a bit slow. um, But she was able to look after herself. She worked for a while in an office doing basic clerical work, but you know, she was a, she was slow, yeah. and because she was very wealthy, her estate looked after it. They had houses, they had animals, they had farms, all part of this family estate, which had a lot of property. One day, there's a knock on the door, and a young blonde kid says, "Oh, do you need me to mow the lawn and do some gardening?" That's fine. This kid was also a bit slow, so they didn't judge each other. They mm. became good friends, even though she was much older than him. Uh, they, she had a car she could drive and they drove around and um, had quite a bit of fun. The mother eventually died in like 1991 of nat- natural causes and the, the, both of their money was put into the public trustee in se- separately because mm. they weren't mentally capable of managing their own affairs. Mm. So Martin had his funds, his father's life insurance, managed by the public trustee, and Helen had hers managed by the public trustee, organised by her family. Helen changed her will, and in 1993, I think, and left everything, all her property, all her pets, to her friend Martin Bryant. And a couple of weeks later, she was killed in a head-on collision with a truck. And Martin was in the car, wasn't he? Martin was in the car. He spent six months in hospital as well with Mm -hmm. spinal injuries. Uh, there's allegations that he grabbed the wheel. He used to play practical jokes like that. See, here's the thing. He didn't have a filter. He didn't know what was appropriate and what's not. Yeah. So he would he would think it was funny to grab, grab the wheel. The wheel. Go, oh, we're going to Oh, yeah, major look. You know. been fun for him, yeah. Yeah, so he, he's literally a child in a man's body. This is further evidence to say yeah. this guy is a real... 
he's a nutcase, mm. but he's not deliberately homicidal. Like, he just thinks it's a great joke. Mm. So Helen Harvey's estate was worth quite a lot of money, managed by the public trustee. Martin's was worth about a million dollars, also managed by the public trustee. He would get cash every month or so, so they limited the... So even though he was very wealthy, he didn't have access to the money. They would give him like a couple of grand a month, and that's all the cash he had until the next time because he had been travelling around. Since Helen died, he'd been travelling the world. He flew to America, to Asia, to Europe, and was basically burning through the money very quickly and would then have nothing to support himself once it ran out. So it kind of makes sense for the public trustee to manage it. However, there's also questions about the Justice Department, the public trustee, Tasmanian government. There's a lot of question marks Mm. hanging over this. So when the shooting happened, the state government moved to freeze his assets and basically stole them and allegedly distributed them to the victims of crime. However, Wendy Skur and other people can testify they didn't see any of the money. There was so much bureaucracy involved in trying to make a claim that most of the survivors gave up in disgust. Really? Yes. Wow. So the money just disappeared into the upper echelons of Tasmanian government. Mm. However, I have not been able to clarify if that disbursement included Helen's share or not because mm. they were probably managed separately by different account managers at the public trustee. Yeah. So follow the money. Yeah, it's that, yeah. If that, if that, if the family were looking at this, saying this little guy doesn't deserve our family's share of the money and he's just wasting it, if he gets bumped off, we claim the money back. Where's the problem in that? It's rightfully ours anyway. Mm. So, um, there's. Um, unfortunately, you know, client confidentiality, we can't get access to those records. But if we had a formal inquiry, then the authorities could subpoena the records from the public trustee. Mm. Um, and I'm quite sure that will never happen because That's, it would yeah. show where the bank transfers went yeah. and where it all ended up. So, yeah, the, the, the money, you follow the money, is a big principle of any investigation and there was a lot of money involved not only martin of his own but helen harvey left him quite a substantial fortune and when tats lotto floated a couple of years later that fortune was then worth even more on the stock exchange Uh, and that's another rabbit hole you can go down you can look up the victorian government's gaming license they gave tats an exclusive gaming license to put a poker machine in every club in Victoria for a thousand dollars or something or a hundred thousand dollars like just a a ridiculously low yeah yeah yeah, and no one else was allowed to do it except them well at the time that was there that they I think maybe Victoria had licensing only in casinos or there was some exclusion yeah it was limited to only certain places and then they allowed another segment of industry to have poker machines and gambling Mm. and the license for that was given to tats for a ridiculously low amount of money and i think it was cheryl kerno was you know had to face questions from angry opposition about Mm. you know why haven't why have you ripped off the taxpayer because you could have charged them a much higher license fee and used the money to build hospitals and schools and stuff and instead you've just 
given the license away and they're going to make millions for their shareholders yeah. that's never going to come to us no. or poor citizens are just going to get broke tapping away a- their money again okay so do the elites benefit their friends in the elites of course they do like this is there's mm. just instance after instance yeah. of this sort of thing happening so um Back to the prison interview, you mentioned that Martin confessed, and he he says a few funny things, like where he points at himself and he says, I'm sure you're going to find out who did this. Yeah. Um, again, he's not taking it seriously, whether he's it's a version of grabbing the steering wheel, mm. um, he's whether he's trying to prank the police in a very, very poor taste way, or whether he's quoting an episode of Blue Healers that he saw on the TV recently. I've tried to look for some sort of TV aired around that time that he might have been thinking I'm in an investigation like that. And he's play acting. I don't know what's going through his mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I've posted a request to people who might be going into Risdon Prison. If you find yourself talking to Martin, would you mind asking him some questions? And that's one of them. Why did you point at yourself? Were you acting out a part in a TV show or something? Mm -hmm. Because... A lot of people look at that and they say, oh, that's proof that he's guilty. But once you read the questions and you get an understanding for what is and isn't going on in this guy's head, mm. it's entirely possible that he's just uh, just play acting. Besides that, the interview is not admissible as evidence because he doesn't have a lawyer with him. Mm. And, the, and he asks for a lawyer and the police tell him, you don't need one. It's a bit cheeky, isn't it? It's, it's a bit, uh, especially if a person with such a low IQ. Yeah. That's exactly why yep. they would have done it. Yep, correct. Um, so t- so to say that this is... Um, yeah, so they, they do warn him at the front, we have to caution you, you're not obliged to answer any questions or make any comment unless you really want to because it's going to be electronically recorded. So they do tell him that. But then further down, when they ask him about his interest in firearms, he says, oh, I'm not sure I should be talking to you without a lawyer. And they say, oh, your lawyer knows we're here and he's okay with it. Yeah. He knows. He knows. Tell a kid that. And, what's a kid going to do? Okay. Yeah. And he believes it. Like, he trusts the police. And like I said, he has no memory of doing it. So he he thinks it's a joke. When he looks at the photos of his car at the toll booth, they say to him, well, we've got witnesses of people who saw you walking around. And he says, it couldn't have been me. And they say, well, that's your car at the toll booth. Who could have driven your car there except you? And he said, maybe the woman that I left with the child. Mm. Well, yeah, it is. Now, do you know what the term crisis actor means? Crisis actor. I, I could take, nope. I could All take right. a stab. Add that to a Google image search. Yeah. Um, a crisis actor is somebody who you, who is used by the police in their training exercises to simulate a casualty of an attack. Yeah. So you can get paid 50 bucks on a Saturday morning to turn up. They'll spray fake blood over you and the police will be then running in and they'll have to assess your trauma and you know stop the bleeding put the tourniquet on make the notes put you on a stretcher and then the police get assessed on how well the, or the yeah. emergency people get assessed on how well they yeah. perform so what's the difference between a crisis actor at a legitimate police exercise or a propaganda video done as a mass shooting i'm not going to get into the whole aurora um, the high school shootings in America, because mm. that's a whole other rabbit hole, and I don't believe that all of them are deliberately staged. Mm. However, crisis actors are a real thing, and you can get paid to participate in legitimate training exercises. 
And this man, woman and child, I would describe as crisis actors. So they were part of the plot, but they didn't actually pull the trigger. Mm. So they're accessories to murder because they participated in it and allowed Martin to play his point. They then disappear from the narrative once she, with the child, drive the Volvo back to Seascape about 12.35, The man, the woman and the child then disappear from the narrative. Whether they went and had lunch at the Fox and Hounds or drove home, they never made a witness statement to say, a man hijacked us at Fortescue Bay and took our BMW. Because the next time the BMW reappears is at the toll booth Mm. at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 1.50, with four new people inside. Rose Nixon, the wife of the man who owned it, her friend Jim Pollard, a lawyer from regional New South Wales, and his friends Robert and Helene Saltzman. The BMW was parked facing the wrong way, so it was coming out the in lane of the toll booth Mm. to block incoming traffic. Okay. Nicholas Cheok and his mother and her friend are driving in and they pull up and stop because there's this car blocking the way. Mm. Two people in the front seat are waving their hands as if to say, go away, go away to them. Parked in the out lane is a yellow Volvo. Mm. And in the front seat is a blonde man. In the passenger seat is a woman about age 40. And behind the driver is another man. And they're all talking. And Nicholas Chirok and his mother are like, what's going on? Why can't we get in? The blonde man gets out of the car, walks around it, around the front, past the side, down to the boot, opens uh, opens the back door that opens onto the bush and comes back around the boot with what Nicholas describes as an Arnold Schwarzenegger-type rifle. The man behind him in the passenger seat gets out and they stand in the middle of the road between these two cars arguing. Then the blonde man lifts the rifle, shoots the guy in the chest, and he falls backwards into the road. At this point, his mother has the car in reverse and is reversing away. Problem is, there's another car has come in behind them, blocking them in. So they're stuck watching this happening in front of them. The blonde man steps over the body, goes around the front of the car again, hauls open the front passenger door, drags the woman out, and shoots her beside the car. Then he comes back to the BMW and shoots the two people in the front seat of the BMW. Mm. By this time, all of these shots have alerted the people in the car behind. They've put their car in reverse and yeeted out of there. The Cheoks get the hell out as well. Across the road at the Kodak shop, Jim Laycock has heard the gunshots and his son-in-law had been in the Greek army, knew what 30 caliber shot sounded like. So they come out of their shop and are looking towards the toll booth. These two cars come flying out in reverse. Mm. And then the gold BMW comes out with the blonde man at the wheel. So he's dragged the two bodies out of the BMW. There's nobody in the boot. The driver of the BMW is not in the boot. He's dead on the road. The BMW comes out, pulls up at the petrol station opposite where the white Toyota Corolla is. And the blonde man gets out and tries to kidnap the woman from the Toyota Corolla, who's in the passenger seat. She fights him off, and Glenn Pears gets out of the driver's seat and comes around to try and defend her to fight the blonde guy off. Blonde guy grabs him with the gun, drags him around the back of the BMW, and throws him in the boot of the BMW. 
Zoe Hall wiggles across into the driver's seat of the Toyota Corolla and tries to get away, tries to leave. And from the hip at the back of the BMW, he just turns and puts two shots into her from the hip. Now, I don't know if you guys are gun people. I'm a gun person. That is incredibly difficult to do. Not an easy shot, is it? But it's not impossible. Mm. Okay, There's a procedure called point shooting where, guys, you can train your brain to hit a big industrial washer they throw a washer up in the air and you can hit it with a pellet gun. Mm. And there's a guy called Lucky McDaniel who did a lot of research of this. You know, um, Annie Oakley, the guys who did travelling shows and demonstrations of trick shooting. I would never lie to you, mate. No, I don't know that, sorry. Anyway, these people used to do, before the age of television, there were travelling shows yep. where people would do demonstrations. There's a guy called Adolf Topperween who broke... I think 4,000 wooden blocks that were tossed up in the air in front of him and he would shoot them apart. Mm. Like just toss, 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 and he would shoot them. Um, There's guys on YouTube who do speed shooting, trick shooting, things like that. So Mm. it's possible to do. And point shooting is taught by a lot of militaries Mm. for close quarters without using the sights. So it's training your eye and your hands to work together to hit something. You touched on that in the book. Quite Correct. A bit actually. Yes. Uh, what's it? Oh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, mate. Kinesiology. Kinesiology. Yep. Kinesiology. Yep. That's the interaction between your subconscious brain and your muscles. Yeah. Yep. Correct. Yeah. So that's another part of psychology and psychiatry that ties in with all of this. Mm-hmm. So imagine if you're a government defence department mm-hmm. trying to make super soldiers. You're interested in all of these things: psychology, hypnosis, mind control, the interaction between memory and muscles. All these things are linked, right? So it's possible to do point shooting, but you do need to be trained for it. Mm. And Martin Bryant had no training whatsoever. Yeah. He'd fired 20 rounds total through his AR-15 and had never even fired the shotgun because he was terrified of the recoil. Mm. So he was what we would call a collector. Wants to own guns, doesn't really have an interest in shooting them. Okay. Mm. Do you know car guys? People who like to collect cars? Oh, mate, doesn't want cars. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You got friends who have three or four historic cars? Uh, yeah, some. Yeah. Okay. How dare they? Don't they know how many people are killed by cars every year? Those assholes. <laughs> you know? All the children that are wounded and maimed by car crashes. I don't like any of them. How, how is it possible that they can live with themselves having those weapons of mass destruction? Like, can you see the, mm. the spurious yeah. argument? Yeah, yeah. Same thing here. This guy was no danger to anybody. Mm. All he wanted to do was have him on the wall and think, you know how you watch a James Bond movie and they open a door and there's a room full of weapons? Mm. That's what he wanted. Yeah, yeah. He wanted wanted quite a catalogue of... um, And and that's okay. Armoury. That's even in um, Wayne's World... Is it Wayne's World 2? They open a door and there's guys training in hand-to-hand combat and shooting and Wayne says, I always wanted that. I always wanted to just be open a door and have guys training (laughs) for... Like, it's, it's not an unpopular idea yeah yeah so um the the guy who was trained in point shooting shot all of those people in the cafe shot zoe hall from you know a couple of meters away but without using the sights Mm. left her body there then drove at full speed north to seascape and got there about 2 p.m he then shot at a whole bunch of cars that were driving past didn't kill anybody, but wounded a few people, and then disappeared inside the house. 
special operations group, I'm going to call them SOG, but it sounds a bit funny, but the SOG constable, Andrew Fogarty, somehow magically materializes on site and throws a phosphorus grenade into the BMW to set it on fire to deny escape to the terrorists. Mm. Two other cops turn up who'd been decoyed away. That's another thing we haven't really talked about. Um, the only cops on the area were decoyed away to Saltwater River, which is a similar distance to New to There's Roaring Beach. Saltwater River is all the way up here on a dirt road. Was, was there only two cops that were on duty for that Correct. day, like in the whole big vicinity? Well, there's Nubina police. Nubina has a police station with two cops on duty. Yeah, one of them's fiance was left behind to answer the phones. Okay, their jurisdiction is shared by another police station at Dunalley, which is up here. Yeah. So these two police stations act together yeah. to police the whole district. Okay. Like there's what, 2,000 people that live in the whole area? Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm not going to talk about Chris Isles. I'm just going to park that there because Chris Isles was a cop from Dunalley who somehow turns up with Jim Laycock at 2 o'clock outside the Kodak shop wondering what the hell's going on. Mm. Now, how f- is it like 45-minute drive from Dunalley to Port Arthur? So he left to drive south before the shooting happened. Mm. Or we could have been in the area, as it happens possible. Yeah, he could have been not far from the area and got calling. Not, a call in not his jurisdiction. Mm. But the two the two other guys were far away, weren't they? So would he correct. step in if um, those guys are far away? They'll say it's it's possible. Mm. I don't have any transcript or any orders ordering him to go south. Mm. It's one of those grey things. Who phoned in that tip-off that there was a stash of heroin at Saltwater River and the police who reported it said it was just a jar of soap powder? Yeah, but that's so that's why they were away. That's why they were away at the perfect time the shooting happened. Yeah. Okay, so who planted that jar of soap powder? Because Petra said she was with Martin the week before. The weekend before was his uh, girlfriend, day. yeah. Petra, Petra was with him the whole week. Yeah. And then she says she left on the Sunday morning to see her parents and he went and did this. So somebody planted that there and phoned in the tip-off an hour beforehand. Mm. So either she went there the night before or two days before with Martin and is an accessory to murder mm. and lied about it and got away with it. Well, she or disappeared He quick, didn't, didn't do it, mm. and somebody else did it, and he took the fall for it. Mm. And they're still out there. Mm. So you can't have it both ways. Mm. You, if you say Martin acted alone, you have to explain how Martin planted that there and organised all the seminars and all the yeah. other things. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, uh, it's, it's one of those ones, isn't it? I see why you've gone deep into this whole Port Arthur massacre and everything around it. It's good, mate. It's good that you've done this. We need more people like you out there looking into um, yep. things Look. that, that you be, we believe, like we believe it on face value. But as you said, mm. we'll, you'll, we would all agree that Martin done it once we can really get yep. a few more answers on the 101 yep. grey areas. Look, to, to be honest, I would be happy if Martin had done it. I'll be happy to be convinced. Mm. And I'll write another book explaining all the errors in my assumptions yeah i don't have a problem with that that's like a duty of care that we should probably say for the listeners as well yep correct me if you feel like i'm wrong but anything we've been talking about we can't 100 percent state it as fact all all i'm calling for is an independent comprehensive investigation Mm. that once and for all settles the issues and people have occasionally said the, the response has been overwhelmingly positive 
However, there have been some people who've said to me, this is disrespectful to the victims. Mm. And my response is, I fully respect the victims, but what they need most of all is closure. Mm. And the only way they're going to get closure is if they get justice. And at the moment, it's all shrouded in mystery. That's only further traumatising them. There were victims' families who called for an inquiry and were denied. And so for people to say it's disrespectful for the victims to raise these questions is actually wrong. It's actually further traumatising them. And they deserve justice. They deserve closure because that's the only way they're going to find peace is to have the people who are truly guilty punished. Mm -hmm. And to use the victims' grief as an excuse not to ask hard questions is morally wrong. Mm -hmm. I cannot. It is not the right thing to do. That is actually actively the wrong thing to do. You're, you're participating in a cover-up and you're using guilt and shame to try and con- stop investigation. Mm. And that's completely wrong. So I have only the greatest amount of respect for the, the victims and their families and all I want is the truth to come out and the guilty to be punished. Those two things do not necessarily go hand in hand. No, no. <laughs> a lot of people have said to me that the truth will only come out once those involved are dead. That's highly likely. Um, the, 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 certainly, the, the people in in government have. That's part of the reason they put the extra seventy five years on to make sure they're dead and gone by the time any of it comes out. Mm. But the stain that this has left on society, not only the shootings, um, but the media cover up and the the the, um, the the lie that Australia is safer after the laws were brought in. Uh, is patently untrue. We've had the same number of mass shootings since 1996 as we have before. Um, the, the the simple fact is that if one of those people had... Oh, hang on. Sorry, I should have turned that off. If one of those people at the cafe had had concealed carry, none of it would happen. Had what, sorry? Concealed carry. Uh, right, a self-defence pistol. Mm-hmm. Like Australia had for many years, up until World War Two. Um, if any of those women had been carrying with the right to defend themselves, none of it would have happened. He would have opened fire, somebody would have gone, boom. I'll tell you who would love you, mate, Americans. They would love that. Look, the the challenge is, why shouldn't everybody love that? Mm. Okay, what is wrong with defending yourself against against a violent attacker? I guess, like, if it becomes more and more common, everyone having guns, as you know, as many dickheads out there. I know, I hear what you're saying. The fact, the FBI statistics say that the more guns there are in private hands, the less crime there is. And the reason for that is, is that the criminals are not going to take the risk in breaking into someone's house or chasing down a woman who's walking alone at night if there is a risk that she's carrying. Mm. I've had personal testimony of women out jogging in parks and things, national parks, state forests, literally a carload, an SUV of blokes pulls up 10 metres in front of her. Yeah. And she lifts her shirt to show the pistol. What now, boys? <laughs> and put it in first gear. She actually got showered with the rocks as the rear wheels spun <laughs> in the gravel to get them away. Now, you answer me this. What would have happened to her if she didn't have that? I don't know what the guy's intentions would have been, but, yeah, if it was to sinister intentions, it wouldn't have ended well, would it? Two million women a year, FBI statistics say, defend themselves without a shot being fired mm. simply presenting the fear. prevents and so the listen a criminal is not looking for a fair fight 
Yeah, it's true. Okay, military tactics say if you find yourself in a fair fight, your tactics suck. Okay, mm. you are never going to be attacked by a weaker person. Mm. True. Okay, yeah. your attacker is looking for a victim, mm. and so if you can even just give the impression that you are stronger, here's how here's how the um, sen- what I call sensible gun laws protect people. Okay, let's say in New South Wales they passed a law tomorrow that said. Anyone who wants to can take a course, a safety course, purchase a, a pistol and carry it concealed under their clothing for the purposes of self-defense. With psychiatric assessment. I, whatever. I hope so. <laughs> Not, uh, and if you carry on like a nutter with it, you lose it mm. and you'll go to prison. Mm. Okay? So in America, for instance, there's a felony called brandishing. So if you walk around waving a pistol, you are committing a crime and you'll lose it. Even though they've got the right to bear arms, you can't be a nutter with it. The police will take it off you. Okay? Is that part of the amendment, is it? Or just... No, that's actually okay. a breach of the amendment. It's actually an infringement on the Constitution. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. we allow that infringement to happen because generally it's safer for everyone. Yeah. Really what should happen is your neighbours take it off you. Okay. But let's just say for the purpose of example, tomorrow they pass in us in New South Wales saying... Anybody who wants to can, with some qualifications, carry a pistol for self-defence. And if you use it and you can justify it with self-defence, then you won't be prosecuted. Okay? Mm. Let's t- take it one step further and say it only applies inside your home. Okay? Mm. Let's get Lebanon's gun laws. Okay? Lebanon, you can own a pistol for self-defence, but it can't leave your house. Mm. If the police pull you over and you've got a pistol in the car, you go to jail. <laughs> but you can have any number of pistols inside your house for the purpose of self-defence. Mm. Gun crime in Lebanon, in terms of violent crime of people breaking in, like home invasions, is non-existent. Mm. Now, sure, it's a war zone where there's armed gangs fighting each other for territory, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about self-defence inside the home. Right? Mm. If New South Wales passed a law saying you can use a gun inside your home to defend yourself, and if somebody comes into your property, no questions asked. They leave in a box. Mm-hmm. The police won't prosecute you. I guarantee you the rate of home invasions would plummet mm. because criminals are just not going to take the risk, whereas now it's open season. I've actually asked Boxar, the statistics people from the government, for information about how many people have been killed in Australia in home invasions. They won't give it to me. Really? They won't release it. Mm. The only way to get this, the only way to get that data is to be part of a university postgraduate research program yeah. which is investigating some sort of research mm. legitimately tied to your doctoral thesis under the supervision of a professor who has to sign off on it to say this is a legitimate research project. They will then give you the data to work with on the assumption that you report your findings to them weekly in an update to prove that you are actually researching it. Mm. And when you finish, you have to destroy it. Oh, yeah. You cannot pass it on to anybody else. Oh, yeah. That's quite a few steps, isn't it? Oh. What are they afraid of? Okay, yeah. because we are not safe in our homes. The government cannot protect us. There are not enough police. Look at America in the last week. Mm. That, that's the biggest like gun control argument in America is dead. Nobody's going to be arguing for gun confiscation or banning AR-15s. Like, it's, it's hilarious, right? Canada just banned AR-15s from a minority government. Mm. Literally next door, <laughs> the only people defending their homes are able to do it mm. with 
rifles. Yeah, yeah. I've seen video on YouTube of a woman standing outside her shop being beaten with a two by four. Like the vi- the video is there, and these guys just come and just smash it into her. And she's on the ground, and they're kicking her outside her shop. Wow. And then the next photo is four guys tooled up with masks on and AR-15s. Their shop didn't get looted. Yeah. I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to describe and is the different, the distinction between a law-abiding person and a non-law-abiding person. And in Australia, that distinction has been completely muddled. And our laws and our media and our people are even very confused about it. And it's time we had a discussion about it. It's time we had a calm conversation in society about the role of self-defence. Because, um, I don't know if you remember that Midnight Oil song, our sons need never be soldiers, our daughters will never need guns, Mm -hmm. these are the years between. That resonated in the 1980s because Australia was a peaceful place. But it's not anymore. Times have changed and we need to adapt. We need to recognise that these laws were put in as a knee-jerk reaction to an outlying anomaly event, Mm -hmm. which has a lot of question marks over it. They have not made us safer. There's more illegal guns in Australia now than there were before. They, a lot of them came in through Sylvania Post Office. Okay, You want to talk about how smart criminals are? These criminals bought a post office <laughs> franchise. Oh, yeah. And they yeah. imported thousands of Glocks from Belgium in pieces. Yeah. And in the room upstairs, they assembled them all and sold them on to you know, Middle Eastern crime gangs in mm. Australia. When the police finally busted them, there was 200 Wow. That's the way to do it, though. Get, get order it all in pieces and then just put it all together. So the thought that our strict gun laws have stopped this happening is just ludicrous. It's self-delusion. Mm. And yet we persist in restricting. Like you, you guys cannot appreciate the ridiculous laws that we have in Australia. And it would it's not the purpose of this podcast. But suffice it to say, the most nonsensical appearance laws and limits and hoops that people have to jump through when they are not a minister society. Anybody who has a mental illness or something cannot cannot be licensed, can't have it. But that's only the start. To jump through all the hoops to get a license, there's then a lot of restrictions of what you can and cannot have. Mm. And those restrictions have no basis in fact. You know, imagine if we said you can't, you, it, it's illegal to have um, a V8 Falcon made between 2001 and 2010, but you can have a V6 the same. Mm-hmm. But a V8 Falcon made before then is okay. Oh. And because we just changed the law, You're stuck with an if, AU. You, if you already own one, you can keep it, but you can't sell it to anybody. Mm. It gets a bit messy, doesn't it? It's... So, I'm sorry, what's the danger? Mm. If, if, if we're now banned from selling these Falcons because somehow they're dangerous. But you can keep the ones you've already got, but you can't sell it later. What's the value of it when you can't sell it? Zero. Mm, so you've paid zero. five, ten, fifteen grand for a car and it's now worth zero? Yeah. And what can you do with it? When you pass away, even if your kids have a licence for it, they can't have it. Oh, really? Is the it? only thing they can do is take it down to the police and say, please, sir, destroy this and stop me being a paper criminal. Mm. And that's just one example of hundreds of these. And your taxes... A billion dollars a year in a f- to run a firearms registry of a bloated bureaucracy that has not solved a single crime, has not prevented a single crime. Really? Yep. Billion. A billion dollars a year. Australia? 
Yeah. Not know? my Australia, surely. Australia. Really? Yeah. Because oh, yeah. there's one for each state. Yeah, yeah. So, a lot of money that we're putting into that. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and a bi- how, how much crime could a billion dollars a year given to mental health prevent? Mm-hmm. How much Black Lives Matter could a billion dollars a year in mental health treatment and support for Aboriginal communities bring? Yeah, it goes on way, it? And yet we're wasting it on this registry that most like like you just had, you've had no idea what was involved. And the money just flows because it goes from our taxes to the government. We don't even see it. Yeah. And what they do with it, they're not accountable for. That's the kicker. That's the kicker of life. Yeah. So um, we've, um, we've covered a lot and there's a, lo- a lot we could cover. If you've got any other questions, let's bring it back to Port Arthur. But um, I think we're good, mate. Yeah. I think that's the right time to end part one. Right. Part yeah. one sounds yeah. good. So everyone get out there, buy the book. So where, where should I get this from? Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Lulu. You, if you just do a, you can search for um, Port Arthur um, Massacre or Oscar Zimmerman on Facebook. You'll find it. Uh, I have a blog, portarthurinquiry.blogspot.com. But um, there's, uh, I'm on social media. So if you um, just search for my name, Oscar Zimmerman, you'll find me. And um, the the what you'll find is when you talk to people, most people fall into a couple of categories either they don't know much about it and they think he did it or they know a, a bit about it and think he didn't do it yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who don't know much about it and so what i'm trying to do really is just present a plausible alternative to the official story which is actually closer to the facts that we know than the the, the current story is because I, i'm convinced that martin has an alibi for where he was and what he did and the police just ignored it because they were under tremendous political pressure to get a conviction, so that they so th- and for him to plead guilty, so that there wouldn't be an inquiry and all of these other questions would come out. So uh, next time we can talk about the defence lawyer. Yeah. We can talk about a few other things, but yeah, from a, a practical point of view, the the official story uh, has more holes in it than a pastafarian's colander. Mm. That's how one of my readers described it. So, yeah. um, if you, I would love it if you buy the book. Um, it's not only in paperback; it's also on ebook, which is a lot cheaper because you don't have to pay for the uh, the printing and postage. Yeah. But uh, so a couple of bucks on Amazon, you can download it on Kindle, or if you want the paperback. Yeah, get out there. The second empty chair, the Port Arthur paradox by Oscar Zimmerman. Mm. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks, guys. Thank you, really See you next it. time. Very interesting. Take right. it, take it easy. Thank Thank you. You.